Welcome to the Talent Bubble, a podcast where HR, people ops, and talent acquisition professionals learn from their fellow colleagues in the trenches. We'll hear how they navigated their careers, learn about exciting projects they're working on, and discover the tools they use to get the job done. Learn more at thetalentbubble.com. I'm your host, Brian Mooney, co-founder of jobhoney.io. Today's episode is brought to you by the People Ops Society a private community of active people ops professionals that are working together to share resources, solve problems, and tackle hard decisions. POPS is a new age professional community that provides access to a full library of policy templates and playbooks, an online forum where peers ask questions and discuss best practices, and a catalog of short peer-led classes available online 24-7. Apply at peopleopssociety.com. All waitlist submissions are reviewed on a rolling basis and new members are being accepted. Join the People Ops Society today and become a member of the movement. This episode of the Talent Bubble is brought to you by ReMB. ReMB is reimbursement reimagined. Most recruiters can share horror stories about how long it's taken their candidates to be reimbursed for interview expenses. Well, ReMB has solved that problem. With ReMB, candidates are reimbursed the same day their expenses are approved. And this is pretty amazing. Candidates can even receive their reimbursement via Venmo. Visit reMB.com now to see why companies like Wayfair, DoorDash, and Peloton are using reMB to improve candidate experience and streamline recruiting operations. That's reMB, R-E-I-M-B-I.com. reMB is reimbursement reimagined. This week's guest on the Talent Bubble is founder of Select Software Reviews and my good friend Phil Strazula. Instead of a typical interview-style episode, this week is an AMA or an Ask Me Anything-style episode where I curated a list of questions from some of Phil's friends, LinkedIn, and some that I wanted him to answer. I asked Phil to be on this podcast because he not only has loads of experience in the HR tech space and as an entrepreneur, but he's someone I've gone to for advice both personally and professionally. Without further ado, please enjoy this AMA-style episode with Phil Strazula. Hey, my name is Phil Strazula. I'm the founder of Select Software Reviews, which is a website that helps HR to find and buy the right software. Basically, we do a ton of research and we write up the vendors who we think are the very best for anything from an applicant tracking system to how artificial intelligence is impacting recruiting and human resources. I spend my days managing our website, doing research, getting awesome content together, and then distributing it out to our readership. I started my career off working in venture capital, doing early stage software investing, went to business school, really wanted to start a company. And so I taught myself how to program and eventually started a HR tech software business with a friend of mine to help companies market themselves as a place to work. If you already had an ATS and you could only buy one tool, what would you buy and why? I think It depends a lot company to company what other tool set you should look for, if diversity is important, if hiring engineers is important, if high volume hiring is important, et cetera. For me personally, I'm looking at a HR solution that will help with a remote first team. So there are lots of challenges with hiring people internationally, international background checks, international payroll. And there's also lots of challenges inherent in having a remote first team around employee engagement, performance, feedback, management, et cetera. And so I'm really looking at that software suite. And to be honest, I haven't found exactly what tool I'm going to buy, but 
really, I think companies need to look at their specific situation and, and what tool makes the most sense. What advice do you have from people trying to get buy-in to implement a new program? I think first and foremost that people operations teams need to think about dollars and cents when they're getting internal buy-in for any given program. So the best way to do this is to think about how what you want to do is going to impact one of the functional areas within your company. So let's say you really want to invest in Glassdoor and making your profile amazing. Why do you want to do that? It's probably because you're feeling pain in recruiting. Well, where are you feeling the most pain? Maybe it's sales hiring. And so you can go to the VP of sales and say, hey, I know you want to hire 100 account executives next year. I think that implementing this new Glassdoor program is going to help us hire those 100 people. Otherwise, we're probably going to be more like 75, 80 like we were last year because we've got a 2.9 rating and anybody that goes on there just thinks we're a terrible place to work. And so I would work with that functional leader to understand what's the value of the business of hiring those incremental 20 people that you'll be able to capture if you have a stronger employer brand and turn that into a number that the CFO can appreciate. So maybe 20 sales reps equals $10 million of new revenue next year. And so, okay, you know, this investment is going to be X amount of money, but we think the value is Y, and therefore we think it makes sense from the business to do that. And so enlisting those people outside of people operations, outside of HR and recruiting to be your leaders, to help you think through the analysis is really, really powerful. How do you communicate the need for solid people operations to your clients who are focused on profit, not their people? I strongly believe that most executives would agree with the statement that people and culture drives enterprise value for their business. There are people who are very short-sighted and they think I'm going to pay the minimum amount of money and hire C players to do XYZ job because it's not that important. But the vast majority of companies, particularly in the West, rely on services and intellectual property to generate revenues. And how do you do that most efficiently? You get the A players. We all know that 20% of the people in our organization do 80 plus percent of the work. How do you get more of those 20 percenters in there? Maybe make it 30% or 40%. And it really comes down to people operations. And so when people say that they're focused on profit, not people, I think they just need to be educated and given new context into how people operations can drive profit by getting more on-target sales reps, by getting more 10x engineers, by having stronger customer success leadership, et cetera. And once you educate people on that and make it as specific and granular as possible with examples, you are going to have more power in the organization and you're going to be able to go out and execute on the things that you want to do. Software aside, what's the most impactful thing, practice, belief, system, et cetera, that a talent acquisition org should bake into its fiber? I believe that talent acquisition teams need to think about themselves as a sales team does and in a systems mindset. So if you think about a sales team, the person who runs that team is, is sort of like a systems engineer. They know that we get X amount of leads from marketing. Some are good, some are bad. There's a system to sort of bifurcate those. The good ones go to this type of rep who asks these questions. And the ones that come out of that go to this sort of rep who asks these sorts of questions, do the demo, maybe there's a closing rep, et cetera. There's this whole process that's been optimized the hell out of. 
And talent acquisition used to be the same way. You are getting leads in, you're processing them, you're vetting them, you're trying to sell them, you're trying to close them. And there are all these different discrete steps that many times aren't operationalized. They're just sort of done ad hoc. And that's going to lead to lower offer acceptance rates. It's going to lead to longer recruiting processes, worse candidate net promoter scores, all these things. And so, you know, throwing out all the other stuff out the window, just look at your TA process from the standpoint of it's a factory and how would I optimize this factory? Keeping in mind that people are people and we want to make sure people are happy and we want to make sure people have great candidate experiences and our recruiters are happy and productive. But what are the ways that it's really breaking down right now and how do we structure something that will improve that? What is something you learned about HR and TA people since starting SSR? This is a little bit cliche, but I think that the vast majority of people in HR and talent acquisition actually really care about candidates and employees. And sometimes that gets lost. You know, there's these very real stereotypes around the resume black hole where candidates apply and they never hear back. And I think there are real some some good and, and maybe some not so good reasons why things like that happen. But at the end of the day, if you talk to anybody working in these roles one-on-one, why they get into it in the first place, why do they stay in it? It's because they just love the idea of helping build an organization and really build a culture and that impact that that culture can have on individuals. What do you think about companies requiring people to come back to work when it is generally thought to be safe, even when some people prefer to work from home? I personally am a huge work from home believer I do it myself. I'm more productive and happier at home. I can have that work-life integration where at 2.30 in the afternoon when the lunch food coma hits me, I can go work out. I don't have to try and power through the next hour and a half and do 30% of what I would normally do if I was actually feeling productive. I can come back after a workout and and do that and have a much higher productivity and, and much higher happiness. And so I think that most companies, they are going to reap massive rewards when they figure out this remote work thing. And that's why you see so many Silicon Valley companies do it, who typically kind of push things to the edge and are always trying to figure out how to be better. And the companies that don't, they're going to not be able to get the best talent because they're going to be geographically constrained. And even in that geography, why would you want to work for a company where you have to commute? That's crazy. You're going to be a C player or that company's gonna have to pay you a lot more, either in outright compensation or perks or other sort of benefits. And so I think that the work from home movement is important for companies to understand and to perfect and to continue on iterating on and really to build into the fabric of their culture and, and people operations. What is the mission from the outset for SSR? The mission for SSR is to help businesses find and buy the right business software. It's a pretty boring mission to a lot of people, Um, but the reason I get excited about it is because one, I'm a software nerd. I love learning about software and how technology is transforming companies. And two, I, I think it's actually really important. The right tools and technology can drastically change somebody's career trajectory if they're the ones that implement it and 
are able to kind of tie their wagon to its implementation. And they can also drastically impact the business trajectory. And that's why you see an explosion in enterprise software and SaaS uh, over the last couple of decades. And this is a massive industry that's growing at insane rates. And so it's important to get it right, but it's hard to get it right because there are so many tools out there and there's so much bad advice out there. I literally today deleted three emails from my inbox from publications that you probably read that say, hey, we're doing a top 10 list. Do you want to be in it? It's 3000 bucks. And so we're trying to cut through that noise to provide journalistic integrity around our ratings and reviews to truly help out companies and on the other side, help vendors because the companies that come to them are going to have shorter sales cycles because they're going to be more in tuned and more educated. You seem to be always creating. Where do you get your ideas and inspiration? Wow. I think that when you start to focus on goals, your brain just starts to come up with ideas that help you try to achieve those goals. And so if your goal is to create really awesome content for HR professionals to buy the right recruiting software, when you're walking around at night after dinner, when you're in the shower, when you're in between emails, whatever the case may be, you're just going to have these ideas. When you're reading something else, maybe you see the parallel with what another publication did and what you could do. So I think a lot of it just comes from creating that space to kind of think deeply and creatively and not always be busy with stick staring at your phone or staring at emails or whatever. And then also just sort of keeping an open mind and always looking to draw those links between what somebody else did and, and what you're trying to accomplish. When are you willing to put money behind something? I'm pretty bad at deploying capital because I'm a very cheap person. And so I am always one of the last people to put dollars and cents behind anything. For me, there has to be a really tangible and achievable return on investment from any sort of budget. For example, I recently built a backend system for my business to manage customers and invoicing and all these different things. And the way I thought about it is that I'm spending about 20 hours a week, or sorry, 20 hours a month doing this right now and I value my time at X. And so that translates into Y dollars per year. And the amount of money that I had to spend on it was basically Y dollars. And I thought there was probably an upside too. I thought that maybe having a more automated process would allow me to get more customers because I could sign them up easily. I wouldn't have all of this uh, kind of mental procrastination around this stuff. And so, you know, in the base case, when I just save myself 20 hours a month, that sort of paid for it in the first year. And in the upside case, I could feel really happy about it. What is the biggest challenge that you are facing as an entrepreneur? The biggest challenge for me is always to try to get better at making decisions. You're never gonna always make the right decision, but I'm always trying to figure out what are my biases? What am I afraid of? What am I too happy or optimistic about? And therefore, what is the optimal answer to the question that I'm currently looking at? And why do those biases exist? And how do I take them out of that process? How do I get better over time at making these decisions? 
who do I need to rely on for certain decisions? How do I get that person to care about what I'm doing? And how do I ask the right questions in the right way that elicit useful responses, not just the response that maybe I want to hear, or maybe they want to tell me? Think back to five years ago. Did you envision your career as it is today? I definitely did not envision my career as it is today. I thought that I was on a path to maybe start one company and then to go work for a larger company or maybe go back and work in venture capital or something like that. And I think that now I'm sort of on this path of starting a couple of different businesses and maybe not even all of them software businesses. I've kind of started this little investing company on the side as well. And to me, it's just like a much more interesting lifestyle, even if there is a lot more uncertainty and sometimes the pain that comes with that uncertainty or the pain that comes with, you know, not making as much money in the short term as your peers or something like that. Um, I think it's just more exciting to try to figure out problems that somebody somebody else hasn't figured out yet. And I think that also when you get used to working for yourself, it becomes really difficult to think about a world where you're taking orders again. Can you recall back to your first big deal? How did it come about? Do you remember your drive back home? I remember really well the first big customer that we signed with NextWave. It was with a huge brand name customer that I signed an NDA, so I can't really talk about. And I actually made the sale in person because the company was in the Boston area. And I remember driving back from the meeting where we found out that we were going to get this customer. And this is not that far into the journey of selling this product. It's probably only like four or five months in. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to be cash flow positive when that hits the bank, at least for that month. (laughs) Um, I was just on a ridiculous, ridiculous high, so much so that I actually completely missed the exit to go back to our office. Like, I think I probably drove 10 minutes past it before I even realized what was going on. It was just like one of those extremely unique moments in life. If you've ever felt that rush of maybe getting into the college of your choice or winning a massive sporting event or whatever the case may be, it was exactly like that. Just so much adrenaline and dopamine hitting your brain all at once. And You just had this amazing euphoria and optimism about what could be for this company. Someone said you should tell the story about a hotel in Denver. So my business partner and I flew out to Denver and we were going to a conference that we had sponsored because we'd sponsored the same sort of conference in Boston and we got a couple customers out of it. And the sponsorship was like three grand. And I think we booked like 30 or 40,000 bucks out of this conference. And so we said, all right, let's just, you know, this, this same conference is in every city in America. Let's just go to all these different conferences and sponsor it. And so we went to Denver and the sponsorship wasn't cheap. We didn't have a lot of money. And so we skimped on everything else. We stayed at the La Quinta Inn outside of Denver and it was horrifying. There was a break-in later that evening where somebody had stolen a wad of cash from one of the cars in the parking lot. It seemed basically like a drug deal gone bad. One of the workers who was working on the hotel, he was painting, had decided to relieve himself in the stairwell, even though the bathroom was probably 30 or 40 feet away. Um, Right as my business partner had arrived, I hadn't gotten there yet. There was just like so many things wrong. They gave us the 
key to the wrong room. Um, they gave us a room that I think somebody else had been in. We, we went in there, the TV was on, there was like food on the table. Um, and we came back. It, it was just like a complete disaster, but I think it was like $47 a night or something crazy. And that's why we did it. And, uh, <laughs> my, my business partner basically said like, I'm never allowed to book hotels anymore. Um, and it was a horrible experience to stay there. And actually the conference wasn't much better. I don't think we booked a single customer out of that. Um, and so it was sort of like this failed experiment and we realized we just got lucky in the Boston conference, but it was also kind of a funny story. What is the greatest contributing factor to your being an entrepreneur? For me, entrepreneurship is just something that gets me super excited. And I think a lot of people have felt this when you get that business idea and you start kind of like fantasizing about it and what it could be and what the company might look like and like how rich you're going to get and blah, blah, blah. Um, and for me, like, it's not just about like that initial idea and that sort of like early fantasizing. It's about everything. It's about figuring out how to make the website faster, about how to win on SEO, about getting the customer, about streamlining invoicing, <laughs> like all these like super boring things. And I just get a rush out of it. I, it makes me happy, gives me adrenaline, it gives me dopamine. And it is so satisfying when I see, you know, the money hit my bank account. And I'm like, wow, there's a hundred different things that happen for that to happen. And it was sort of like all on my shoulders. And I think that, you know, when I look back at the sports that I've really enjoyed, like I wrestled in high school, which is basically an individual sport. I play golf now. That's an individual sport. And so I like kind of having everything on me and eating what I kill. What do you do when you are not working? When I'm not working, I like to, one, make sure that I'm staying physically and mentally healthy. So exercising on a very frequent basis, just about every day, meditating on a very frequent basis, eating the right food, getting fresh air. I love to spend time with my friends and family, just kind of hanging out. I think that those sorts of relationships make life worth living. And I also just like to learn and read. Um, and even, you know, learn sometimes, even if you're watching Netflix, I think that's sort of one of the core things that, that drives me. What is the most memorable moment since being an entrepreneur? The first sale that we ever got was incredibly memorable. So I was on the phone with this company. I was not expecting them to say yes at all. This was a follow-up call to a demo that we did for a very, very half-baked product. And we'd sent them this contract for, or I'm sorry, we'd said it's $3,000 a year and they said, sounds good, send over the contract. And I said, okay, I'll send it over this afternoon. And I hung up the phone. Of course, there was no contract. Um, I had to Google that afternoon, like all these different SaaS contracts and just kind of throw something together. And, and you know, $3,000 to some people might sound like a very small amount of money, but to us starting off, it was insane. Like somebody was going to pay us $3,000 for this thing that we just sort of coded over the course of a couple of months. And so the, it was just like very rewarding that somebody was willing to actually pay us for that. And then it also created this sense of optimism around what this business could become at some point and what maybe we could become at some point, because we had really started off on this journey hoping to become entrepreneurs, but of course, most people don't make it. And so that was like a huge proof point to say that, you know what, 
this is something that is achievable? Do you have any routines that you feel contribute to your success? Every day I block off my calendar from 8 to 11 a.m. I do that because I'm a bit of a morning person and I find that if I start the day with a meeting or even if I start the day reading emails and doing anything reactive, then the rest of my day is basically shot. I basically find that when I wake up, I have a very low amount of craving for dopamine. But if it spikes, if I check my stocks and my stocks are up, if I check the news and something gets my blood boiling, if I you know, start getting into a WhatsApp conversation with my college friends, my body then will just consistently seek out that same sort of pleasure through continuously checking my emails, through uh, going on LinkedIn and seeing if anybody messaged me, all these things that really don't add up to very much productivity. And so 8 to 11, I block it off. There's no meetings. And I just try to get one or two things done that I need to get done to move my business forward. So that's huge for me. I think the other huge thing is exercising and meditation. Most afternoons around like 2.30, when maybe you feel that lull from a food coma, you just get some exercise in, get your mind right, and power through to have a productive rest of the day. Another routine that I have is I almost never check emails on the weekends, and this allows me to turn my brain off from work. I think there's so much stress, especially when you start your own company and you kind of have this thing on your own. There's so much stress, and if you can recharge on the weekends, you're just going to be so much more productive during the week. I think a lot of entrepreneurs think they need to beat themselves up. They need to work 100 hours a week. They need to always be on, always there for their customers. And in some cases, that's true. And you need to hire somebody to be that always on person because you can't in the long term sustainably do that. But for most companies, you can take the weekend off and nothing, the world is not going to end. Do you have any asks of the audience? If anybody out there has a website that helps people in a business context and wants to help people to find and buy the right software, please put a link in your site to select software. If it's a blog post or really anywhere on there, we always love it when people can learn about our company. And that's really the best way. If you have a trusted website that people go to and you're like, hey, you know, take a look at this or one of our articles is interesting, put a link in there. We really appreciate it. Where should people go to learn more about you, SSR? The best place to connect with me online is LinkedIn, Phil Strazula with two Zs and two Ls. There's only a few of us out there. There's also philstrazulo.com. I've been blogging for the last 10 years very infrequently, usually about once every six months. Um, and then, of course, if you want to learn about Select Software Reviews, selectsoftwarereviews.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Talent Bubble. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. If you want to help the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Thank you so much and be well.